The following sermon is from Christ Church Port Orange. For more information, find us online at joinwithjesus.org. Thanks for listening. All right, let's jump in. So uh, Christianity and feminism. I got a bunch of questions related to um, marriage, how husbands and wives relate to each other. Some questions about the role and function of women in the church. And then a question or two that was poised kind of against feminism as an invasive movement that is influencing the church and asking, uh, is that something that is good or should be combated? And so there's, this is a multi kind of layered question, but it kind of falls under the topic of Christianity uh, and feminism. And so I want to I want to start there. And I usually start with a text and I did not know which text to start with and I was bouncing around. Uh, Usually about 5 a.m. on Sundays, I'll get up and I'll take nine sermons worth of content and I'll whittle it down to what I think I can fit in 30 minutes, which I'm always wrong. And I usually pick a text that's the foundational text for a topical sermon like this. And I just kept moving and it's this one, this one, this one, this one. And I kind of just stopped because I didn't, I usually I feel like deep, like this is the one. And so I didn't feel that, but I was like, well, that's the last one to be right there. So I was going to start with that. And during the worship portion of the service and first service, my beautiful bride, Tiffany, she whispered in my ear the, the word of the week, and it was so perfectly profound for this morning. And so I want to read this passage, which wasn't in my notes, but I'm listening to the Holy Spirit. Oftentimes, he sounds like my wife. <laughs> Colossians 2. Yeah, there it is. You guys are happy. You're like, I feel good. We could go. We could go. We could take a, take a nap before third service. All right. You guys are going to get me in trouble today. I can already feel it. This is going to be fun. Colossians chapter two, starting in verse six. This is not on the slides, but if you have a phone, which you probably do, it's, you know, it's 2022 after all. Colossians two, verse six. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ... All the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. God, we thank you for your word, which has been read in our hearing. As as much as we understand Jesus, so we understand it can make sense of this world. Lord, give us minds, sharp minds, to center our thinking and our worldview on Jesus so that we might understand and interpret complexities, both spiritual and secular. God, we want to have your heart. We want to find your will and your purpose. And I want to see every follower of Jesus operating at full capacity in the church in this generation. God, our world needs it. So we want to be a beacon of truth and hope. Lord, help us as we consider what you have said. In Jesus' mighty name and all God's people said, 
Amen. Amen. So these, these questions, I love these questions, by the way, and I, and I love what the questions tell me about the perceptions of the people who ask these questions and the heart of them. I, I really see at the heart of this particular question, set of questions, uh, is, is uh, an impulse towards both love and leadership. And how do those things function in kind of the hierarchy and structures of power and the organizations of society and so on? And so there's some obvious complexity there, but I think it really is important that we consider those things. I do want to take you back to week one. We're in week four. In week one, I asked you to carefully consider your pre-existing condition known as your ideology, which was likely already intact when you came in and for many of us becomes the interpretive method by which we evaluate and build our own sense of faith. And it's important for us that we recognize our bias. And if you're here and you say you have no bias, well, you ought to be a journalist because we sure could use some journalists with no bias. The reality is all of us have bias and we were formulated in our thinking. And as we were formulated in our thinking, we, we bring certain presuppositions into our understanding of the world. And that is our ideology. It's important for us as Jesus followers to turn that upside down and to start with the foundation of who Jesus is and alter our ideology as is necessary. Can I get amen? It's easy to say amen, it's harder to do, but that's what we're seeking to do. And so go back to week one if you didn't already hear this because I gave you seven elements of a Jesus-centered worldview. You need from the scriptures to have an understanding of creation, that uh, somebody made all this and it wasn't you, that there's a creator and you're creation, that you have a need for revelation. You are made in the image of God, so you can consider and look at the world. You can logically deduce things. You can know kind of philosophically, ontologically that all this did not exist by itself. And so there is a creator, but you also need uh, special revelation, divine revelation in the form of the scriptures, which attest to their own veracity and truth and power as both being alive and active and able to not only be read and understood, but also to read us and to help us understand ourselves. So creation, revelation, and then unification. We've got to have a worldview that is centered on something that makes sense of the meaning of life, our own existence in this world, how to interpret the scriptures in a logical and coherent fashion. Uh, there's, there's not a lot of that out there. There's a lot of variety. There's a lot of options, but there's not a lot of unity. So we need unification. At the center of a Jesus-centered worldview is salvation. It is about God reuniting himself to mankind. That happens through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and salvation in his name through faith. And that's gotta be at the center of our worldview as well. This means we are now as saved people, as people who are uh, rejoined to God and his life-giving spirit through faith in Jesus, we are now on mission in history, in redemptive history, that this is going somewhere. And that part of our experience is the mission. And that means that all of us have a vital role to play. We are an empowered missional community, which means your life is more than you just enjoying everything and checking a box on Sunday that went to church. It's about you living the fullness of who God made you to be, mission. This leaves us in a position of expectation because the scriptures have told us that the promise is that Christ will return and bring judgments all things. And so we are people who live in expectation. The, the Lord could tarry 10,000 more years or he could come before the sermon is over. Come Lord quickly. But we don't know when. And so we, that means we always live in anticipation of his immediate return. Do you understand? And so that expectation has got to fuel your understanding and, and uh, engagement in the world. And then lastly, consummation. This is ending at the final judgment and it's bringing us into a new age that is fixed and eternal. And that has got to influence our thinking as well. And so these are the seven elements of a Jesus-centered worldview and you need them in order to evaluate and to alter your sense of ideology. Now, we're gonna talk about Christianity and feminism. Now, here's the tricky thing about feminism. And I know some of you, 
or in my hearing right now, and you are kind of dyed in the wool feminist. You understand the value of women, the equality of the sexes, and you have stood up to say uh, that's oppressive and must end. And so there is uh, an association with feminism personally for people who are in my audience. There are also those who come from a very traditional and Christian background who would see feminism as a bad thing. Feminism in and of itself is a secular force that is opposed to the purposes of God and is seeking to tear down the establishment of what God has set into place as described or possibly prescribed in the scriptures. And so in the Christian church, there is both Christian feminism and there is traditionalism that is anti-feminist. So this should be fun. (laughs) And as we kind of jump into this, I want us to be a little bit more clear about what feminism is because feminism actually exists on a serious spectrum. There's lots of different kinds of feminism and over time, feminism has actually developed. And if you read about feminism, you'll understand that there's four waves of feminism. First wave feminism in our modern American history started around the turn of last century and was uh, equated to the women's suffrage movement and was mainly a political and legal impulse, women acting on their own behalf to gain equality of rights, voting rights, property rights, parental rights, legal rights under the law. And in fact, the only reason women can vote and we have the 19th Amendment to the Constitution is because of the women's suffrage movement and first wave feminism. And aren't we all kind of glad that worked out the way that it did? Nice job, ladies. Some of you only know that Susan B. Anthony is on a dollar. That's it. But the first wave of feminism was about rights. And the majority of what happened during that first wave uh, ended up with things that I think all of us, at least today from a retrospective perspective, would agree with. There's plenty of bad things also. A lot of the women were saying, let us vote so that we can make sure that slavery stays intact. That's not a, that's not a good thing. Um, so there was that early on before the kind of first wave of, of uh, feminism. But there's also second wave feminism that was moving beyond these basic rights and more towards uh, just equality in general. So this became sociopolitic. So this is like Gloria Steinem uh, era equality. And then a third wave of feminism is kind of like into the 80s, 90s. And this is where um, women having positions of prominence and influence became forefront. And so you have voices like Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Hillary Clinton. Um, there was a kind of a gross version of this that was centered around sexual exploitation. So like Madonna is kind of like the poster child of third wave feminism. And so you just take all the freedom, take all the equality you can gain and then take that freedom to express yourself in however you see fit. Uh, so there's a lot of throwing off of any restraint. But now we're in this fourth wave of feminism that is come in combination with something called intersectionality. How many of you guys know have heard that word? Raise your hand if you know really I need participation. If you've heard the word intersectionality, raise your hand. Okay, all seven of us. Okay, so uh, intersectionality is part of this new progressive neo-Marxist movement that's happening pretty much in people 30 years and under right now. It's part of the reason why the elections went the way that they did. Um, this impulse for people who, who are younger than me and think in this neo-Marxist way is uh, all uh, society and institutions are inherently evil, that they are, they are set up on the precipice of oppression and everything is about power. And so what we need to do is we need to topple all of that power over and that will fix the problem. The problem with that is that solution actually has no solution. And on the other side of that solution is simply tyranny. Um, and so if you're under 40 years old and that's the way that you think, um, <clears throat> you should probably turn off the social media influencers and read some old books. Uh, but, but, but here's the thing. Oh, you guys can clap for that if you want. Um, 
this intersectionality has grappled with feminism because feminism has tried to smash the patriarchy, right? And so there's an oppressive force against women and the women have been fighting against that through feminism. And now intersectionality says, okay, come join the lesbians and the gays and the bisexuals and the queer and the transgenders because we're fighting against these structures of power too and let's lump all those feminists in there. But a lot of the feminists are like, what? And so you get groups like TERFs, trans exclusionary radical feminists, where they're saying, wait a second, we're feminists and you're saying a man can be a woman. If a man can be a woman, then there's such a thing as a woman and there's such a thing as a feminist. And so we're against this and now you have all this kind of infighting. And so trying to say that feminism is a thing is not a thing. It's many, 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 many things. And the problem is when we use a word like feminism, all of us have an idea of what that means. And then we end up with that confusion like from the princess bride, remember? You keep using that word. I don't think it means what you think it means, right? <laughs> So we can't just say feminism and assume that we're all coherently talking about the same thing because there's some elements of the different waves of feminism that have been inherently good for society and it's because they're based on actual biblical principles. But there's a bunch of garbage that's in there as well. Now we have to sort out now what is a Christian worldview, but the problem is not just that the variety and the difficulty exists in the word feminism. We have just as much problem in quote unquote Christianity. And in fact, there's a broad spectrum of belief surrounding the purpose, role, and equality of women and how that gets expressed in both marriage, family, and in the church, and in the world. And so there's a whole variety of spectrum of thinking about this as well. What's important for us is that we take down our ideologies, some of which will be both religious and historic, traditional, others that will be uh, kind of late-breaking and secular and maybe have their roots in something like Marxism, but we have to take those and we have to evaluate them in light of who Jesus says that he is and what the Bible actually contains for us in terms of revelation from God who made all this and actually has the right to define what is good and what is evil, what is a man and what is a woman. Does that make sense? So that's what we're gonna do. And if we have time, which we did in the first service, had a little bit of time, and we made some more time, um, we're gonna take apart some of the really tricky passages in the New Testament that seem to really obscure, oppress, or limit the function of women. Won't that be fun? So there's like four of them that you probably know. Women shouldn't speak in church. Women shouldn't have authority over a man. Women should submit to their husbands. Women need to keep their heads covered. There's some passages that you go, say what? Say what? Um, but a lot of these passages and the way that they're played into the rest of the Bible create a narrative that solidly keeps hierarchy in, in play, it establishes and supports the patriarchy, and it calls faithful Christian women to a certain brand of Jesus followership uh, that, that limits them purposefully. Uh, and so we're gonna evaluate both radical feminism and also kind of traditional Christianity from the scriptures. And so we better get started. So what does God's word say? What does God's word say? That's the question. Now we have to go back to the Jesus-centered worldview, the elements of a Jesus-centered worldview. And so we go back to creation. So let's go to Genesis chapter three. Last week when we talked about Christianity and sexuality, we talked a lot about Genesis two because that's what that's about, marriage and sexuality, the union of man and woman. Um, we could easily go there for this sermon as well, Genesis one, two, but I wanna go to three. I wanna go to chapter three, verses 14 to 21. This is after Adam and Eve have sinned in the garden and God's come to find them. They have an inter interaction with God where he's asking who started it, who did what. A lot of blame shifting has happened. Adam's like, that woman, the one you gave me. Somehow this is God's fault. The woman says, hey, I listened to the snake. You made the snake. Snake was here when I got here. And so then God starts to pass out the cursing. Here, here goes. This is Genesis 3, 14 to 21. And God follows this in reverse order. The Lord God said to the serpent, that, that ancient deceiver, uh, here as an animal, but equated with the enemy of God, the devil, 
uh, in all of his deceptive ways. Because you have done this, tempted the woman, lied to her, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between her offspring and your offspring. This is why most women do not like snakes. Right here, it's in the Bible. And then we get what theologians call the proto-euangelion, the first good news or the seed of the gospel in, in verse um, 15 here, it says, he, the seed of the woman, shall bruise or crush your head and you shall bruise or crush his heel. This is some enigmatic statement, but it creates an expectation that from the union of Adam and Eve, a seed is going to come that is going to set all things right. It creates messianic anticipation and the whole rest of the Bible is predicated upon that messianic anticipation. So the birth of Cain and Abel, the murder that happens, the banishment, hopes crushed, Hopes are crushed, dreams are lost. Seth comes, new hope. And it goes in cycle after cycle after cycle. Ultimately, the promises get bigger. The picture gets more filled out. Eventually, you come to the seed of the woman, the son of David, the eternal son of God, the Christ, the God-man, Jesus. That's where all this is going. And the seed of that is here in verse 15. So this is what God says to the serpent. Verse 16, to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. So the purposes of God are continuing to go forward that you would be fruitful and multiply, but the curse, the punishment for rejecting God is the multiplication of pain. I got some ladies in the house that have had natural childbirth. Did it hurt, ladies? Tell us the truth. Yes, it did. And so kind of like the epidural is there to reverse the curse and bring us back into the original created order, right? Pain-free childbirth experience. My wife gave birth to our four children, all natural, no epidural. I was watching it happen and I wanted the epidural. I tried to negotiate that. I was like, put it in my top half, doc. You know, like, this is hard to watch. Um, and then there's this phrase that comes up again and again and again in this topic of uh, feminism, women's role in the church in historical, in uh, redemptive history and in marriage. Um, your desire shall be for your husband or contrary to your husband in this rendering, but he shall rule over you. So this phrase, just like the proto-euangelion, comes, comes back to be the fork in the road for how you interpret everything else the scripture says about the relationships between men and women if you read this as a function of the curse or, and then how you read that back into the creation order and the divine purposes of God is going to drastically change the application of what women are meant to do and how they respond in, in a broken world inside of these power structures. And so we're gonna come back to this. And then 17, God said to Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree, which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it, you were taken for you are dust and to dust, you shall return. So Adam traded in, his experience of living in the produce section of a public store to farming. That's what he gets out of all this. And as you see, it is a pain and agony and difficulty and a complexity in the relationship between men and women. But I love this in verse 20. There's always hope, always hope. You will never ever engage the scriptures and find yourself hopeless. There's always hope. Verse 20, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. 
And here we see two things. One, we see the man continuing to fulfill God's purpose for him as he named all the animals. Now he being the first created is giving a name to Eve and the name he gives her is Eve, the mother. And she is now the figurehead mother of all things. And so her dignity and quality to Adam are intact. Adam's role before God is intact and a plan is in place for God to redeem what is good in creation and to destroy that which is evil. That is the setting of the scripture and that is the way we must begin to interpret the word through a Jesus-centered lens. So we've got to ask ourselves a little bit about how does this whole patriarchy thing fit into the scriptures? Now, there's a lot of people who even call themselves Christians and will say, yeah, the Bible's full of all kinds of evil stuff and patriarchy is one of those evil things. And so that's in there and all these women were oppressed and the story after story of, of people being victimized and, and hurt and abused and patriarchy is evil. And so we need to topple it over. It's bad for business. Meanwhile, there are those who are saying, Patriarchy was God's design. This is the way that it's supposed to work. And if you take yourself outside of, you get sometimes you get these little pictures with umbrellas. God's an umbrella and a man's an umbrella and a woman and there's a children and there's all this protection and covering that goes on, this covering language. This is how this is all supposed to work. And if you leave that patriarchy, if you walk outside of those structures that God's put in place, you're at danger and everything's gonna go south and everything's gonna fall apart. And so that's bad. Now the question becomes, is patriarchy good or bad, right? And the answer is, it's neither. Patriarchy and any hierarchy is like money or alcohol. Power is morally neutral. What makes it good or bad is what you do with it. Do you realize this? Think about this for a second. There's nothing wrong with hierarchy. You need hierarchy in your small business or your employees will think they are the boss. You understand? You need a hierarchy in any type of organization. The military depends upon a hierarchy. Hierarchies are not bad. It was Jesus who actually said to the centurion, remember the centurion says, Jesus, my servant is sick. And Jesus says, oh, I'm gonna go to the centurion. This is the enemy of Israel, by the way, a Roman soldier, a leader. He says, I'm gonna go. And he says, hey, I'm not worthy to have you come under my house. But I have people under authority that do what I say. All I need you to do is say the word and this will happen. Jesus said, I've not seen greater faith in all of Israel than this guy. Why? Because he understood the power and the value of hierarchy. That does not mean, however, that hierarchy is always good because power, like sex, like money, like anything good that's powerful can be exploited and misused and become abusive. Yes? So patriarchy is not by itself bad. Hierarchy is not by itself bad. But it's what you do with that power. And and throughout the scriptures, both men and women are shown to be in places of considerable influence or power. And what they do with that power is, is portrayed for us as either being good or evil. And since we're talking about women and feminism, consider the difference between Deborah, the judge, and Jezebel, the wife of Ahab. Both of them, women, both of them put in a position of power near to the center of God's activity on the earth. One of them used that power to to fulfill God's purposes and the other one went directly against God's purposes. And so it's not about the power structure itself. It's about how you function on the inside of it. The power structure is morally neutral and also sometimes very helpful. I read a lot of sociologists, listen to a lot of podcasting. A lot, most sociologists would say there is no modern humanity without patriarchy. Why? Because the majority of human history was lived in a world where everyone was killing each other all the time and trying to survive in the wild. It was really, really good as a woman to have a bigger, stronger, and a touch crazy man around in that environment. Do you understand? And so to get where we are required an environment in which Men who are built by God to be physically larger, generally, doesn't mean always. I know I have some friends who are girls who are firefighters. They could easily throw me over their shoulder and carry me out of a burning building, no problem. However, 
for the most of human history, the, the man is in this position of leader, of owner, of protector, and that works to actually protect the vulnerable, women who are generally weaker, children, families. And so patriarchy was a really, really good thing for a really, really long time. And we shouldn't be smashing the patriarchy because of the abuses that happen underneath of it. What we need to do is point to the problem, not the structure. And this is where I want to speak to all you wonderful 30, 20, 30 something neo-Marxists. Burn it all down. What are you going to put in its place? the way that God plans things, but that patriarchy brings about Jesus. And then you start reading the gospels and Jesus will blow your mind. Jesus comes across to a first century Jew as a radical feminist. Jesus has his entire ministry paid for by women. All, all the support Jesus gets comes through wealthy women. He's, he, he invites women to be learners from him and disciples. They follow along with him. This was unheard of. You know that story about Mary and Martha and Mary's cooking. She's doing the female thing. And our Martha's in the kitchen. Mary's, what is she doing? You know that the phrase sitting at the feet of was an official phrase for somebody who's enrolled in university with a rabbi. This is not just she was chilling by Jesus, learning, listening. She was literally making herself a student of Jesus, which was radically feminist. And then you get from the point of Jesus interacting with women, but you have to, you have to contrast that to the fact that Jesus chose 12 men to be his disciples, did he not? The official disciples who became the apostles were 12 men. Why? Because Jesus is making a link between the 12 tribes of Israel, the heads of those tribes and the patriarchy, and this new thing that God is doing that now involves both Jews and Gentiles in the church. And that's founded upon what? Christ Jesus as the cornerstone and the teaching of the apostles, the 12. So you get both of these two things working together. But then as the scriptures begin to unfold, the picture becomes pretty significantly feminist. Take for consideration Acts chapter 2. Verses 14 to 18. So uh, Peter, who was famously known in the gospels for repeatedly sticking his foot in his mouth. Peter only takes his foot out of his mouth to insert the other foot over and over and over and over again. Okay, so this is why all guys relate to Peter. And then Peter now filled with the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter two, he stands up and starts preaching this profound sermon. Uh, the Holy Spirit has descended. Jesus said, wait in Jerusalem till the Spirit comes upon you. The Spirit shows up like, like tongues of fire. People uh, who are there, men and women, begin prophesying and praying in tongues and languages unknown to them. People who are gathered in Israel for the festival hear the languages in their own native tongue from back home, which nobody's accustomed to hearing. It draws in a huge crowd. And then Peter begins to preach. It says in verse 14, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose. I know what you're thinking. This is crazy. Since it's only the third hour of the day, come back at six, we can have a real conversation. But this was uttered through the prophet Joel. And he begins to preach from Joel chapter two. And in the last days, it shall be, God declares, I will pour out my spirit on what? All flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams even on my male servants and my female servants. In those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. There is a new era that is coming in that involves men and women in ways that men and women have not traditionally functioned. And this is radical, but it's from God's perspective with a Jesus-centered worldview. It's not about tearing down a structure that is morally neutral. It's about understanding the purposes and the plans of God. And so here's the thing about uh, feminism. Feminism is fighting for two things, typically, equality and freedom, right? This is what feminism is after, equality 
and freedom. And there's different brands of, of feminism. There's the, there's the anything you can do, I can do better feminism, right? Which is essentially just reverse chauvinism, which we're all accustomed to seeing these days in a number of different fashions. But then there's also this, this, I have to be unhinged from anything that may be oppressive to me. And so you have equality-driven feminism and you have freedom-driven feminism. Let me just ask you a question. How can you have a conversation about equality unless we're talking about specific characteristics? Because men and women are inherently different. Can I get an amen? It's not cultural. It's not stereotypical. It's in the design. God made us be different. Now, not all men are exactly the same and not all women are exactly the same. And not all men do all manly things all the time. I wish I was ripped. I am not. I am perpetually the skinny guy. That's who I'm going to be. I spent my whole teen years waiting to fill out. That's what the old ladies told me. Don't worry, eat potatoes. You'll fill out. So we're not all built the same way. We're not all wired the same way. But men and women are inherently different. So my question is, if you're after equality, on what characteristic? Like, how do you compare equality? What's better, a ribeye or a peach? What's more equal? It's nonsensical to talk about equality in this fashion unless you're saying things like equal rights under the law. Does a woman have equal rights under the law to a man or not? That's a valid question about equality. But to say all women need to be equal with men, that's silly. That's like saying all nuts need to be equal with fruit. On what basis? Are we talking about caloric intake? What's the characteristic? Do you understand what I'm saying here? So equality is this word that's thrown around that we all go, yeah, equality. But it's dumb. It's dumb what we're doing with it. It doesn't make any sense. And then the second thing is freedom. This is about the oppression of the patriarchy and women need to be set free. And I wanted to ask, free for what? Free to do what? Like Madonna, just take your shirt off all the time? Kiss girls in books? Like, I don't know, what, what, what do you want to do? Like, that's the question. Now, where oppression takes place, that we need to be able to say, that is evil. Where, that, where abuse takes place, that is evil. Not because of the system, not because of inequality, because God says what is good and God says what is evil. Am I, am I ticking off some of you? Not yet? All right, better keep going. (laughs) Part of the issue that happens in the church is that we go back to this whole idea of creation order. And so you get these two groups of Christians, complementarians, who would say, these are the kind of traditionalists. This is like God made men to be leaders, protectors, and providers. And God made women to be nurturing, home, homemakers, and, and, and teachers of children. And so women shouldn't teach in the church, and women shouldn't have authority, and the man gets to say in the house, and this is how the whole thing's set up, and that's a good thing, and God ordained it that way. And there's all these scriptures that reinforce that. And these people are like, if you give on this, it's a slippery slope towards all evil breaking loose. So be afraid. So that's complementarianism. So check out the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood for all their articles. And then there's the egalitarians. The egalitarianism says men and, weak, men and women are different, but they're equal. So we need to make sure that they are, have equal opportunity in the church. And so this is, this is women should be able to be pastors, leaders. Um, men and women should both have the say in the house and should come to kind of mutual agreements about how decisions are made. And nobody has a trump card. Nobody has a veto card. And so this is kind of egalitarianism. And if you... Don't buy that. You're silencing 50% of the gifts of God in the church of Jesus. See how drastic the stakes are here? So some of you are going to be inclined towards one of those two or the other. And if you go to the Christians for Biblical Equality, you can read all the articles from the egalitarians. And I suggest you read both of them uh, and, and take the scriptures 
into account and make your own decision. I did this. I used to be in one of those groups and I moved to the other because of the scriptures, not because of their articles, although that was fun. Uh, from the scriptures, I went from the hard scriptures and I kept going back and I kept going back and back and back and back and back all the way to Genesis chapter one, which is where everything starts and asking the question, what are the, what's this whole concept of roles? Are we different in roles? Are we equal in value and dignity, but different in roles? And then what are those roles? And are those biblically defined? Are those culturally prescribed? Those are important questions. These are the things that I keep asking myself. And then I'm asking, is the patriarchy purposeful or is it arbitrary? Is it, is it moral or is it amoral? And then you go back to the Genesis account and here's what you find. You will find that God goes to great lengths through Moses to create a mythology, an account of our beginnings that explain the, and add meaning to the world we live in. And it shows that men and women are in fact equal, made of the same stuff, that we are in fact complementary, that we are the yin to each other's yang, that it's not good for there to be one of us, that we're half a person until we're put into this relationship. For the most part, it's not to say there shouldn't be perpetually single people. That's part of God's plan too. That's in there. <laughs> but for the most part, men and women have a complementary relationship that we are therefore interdependent. This is really important, interdependent. I need my wife and she needs me. And that's not bad. And I, I need to know that I need her. And if I don't, that's a problem. Can I get amen? But she also needs to know that she needs me. And if she doesn't, then that's a problem. And this is where feminism starts to fall apart because God did create us to be interdependent. And that means we need to have mutual respect and value of each other. Because, because in our union, God has a purpose. And that purpose is both fruitfulness and flourishing. This is what God is after. The problem with all anti-God movements is they become immediately barren. The children become problems to be solved, eliminated. The relationships no longer fruitful, no longer bearing children, no longer fulfilling the purpose of God on the earth. All anti-God movement becomes instantly barren and the purposes of God come to an abrupt stop. This is one way that you can evaluate what's going on in the world around you. And then lastly, our union is meant to be synergistic. The two of us with men and women, both in marriage and in ministry in the church are meant to be using our gifts in such a complementary way that we are able to do more together than either of us could do on our own. And this is where the church is failing, I'm afraid. I'm afraid there's too much teaching that restricts women that is ridiculous because it doesn't even understand what the Bible's saying, but it fits into an old model and you therefore just shut down what it is that God wants to do and you lose the synergy of the church. Listen, our world needs a third great awakening pronto. And it may be coming at the voice of a lot of women who have no voice because the church has been getting this wrong for a while. And so what I'm gonna say is gonna maybe be a little unsettling to some of you. Let me ask you these questions and I'm gonna do one, one of these little tricky passages and then we're gonna ask God to help us live our lives in a way that honor him. Um, three, here's some diagnostic questions. Were you, who made you? Effort went into you being you. You were made by someone. You were made for something. Do you know that? Women, in your body is a illustration that God made you for something. You were made to bear and deliver and carry and nurture and protect and to provide and to lead and to guide and to teach and to train and to, and to create a structures of safety and beauty and creativity and strength. And it's in your body. 
that God shows you that that's there. And men, likewise, you, you were made to pursue and to go after and to create and to defend and to strengthen and to protect and to lead. Both women and men do a lot of these same things. There's lots of overlap, but you were made, and in your body, it tells you that you were made for something. You're made for something. You have to take that cue from God. And, and you're being made male and female, and the gift of sex in marriage is, is a thumbnail. It's a picture. It's a mystery that God buried into his design. It's a feature, kind of like that little, um, that little feature in the Death Star, remember? I buried it deep down inside. It's in there. God put something in this marriage relationship. And that mystery is that it's a picture of what God is going to do for all humanity in a reunion through a husband and his bride that is going to put all things back together and bring to fullness that which is hidden in history. This is what, this is what Ephesians chapter five is all about, that this union of man and woman and the way they interact with each other is in fact picture of what God is doing through Christ and the church and that he wants everybody to be a part of. Do we have time for one of these tricky passages? <laughs> You're like, yes, forget that third service. <laughs> Let's do um, 1 Timothy 2, 11 to 15. 1 Timothy 2, 11 to 15. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Don't you love that word? You feminists, submissive, that's your favorite word. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. That seems clear enough, doesn't it? Shuddy, ladies, zip it in the church, right? Is this what this means? At cursory, literal reading, you can see why someone would come to this conclusion that women should never speak in the church, right? And there's another passage in 1 Corinthians we can talk about. Let me take this apart for you. Number one, this passage in its original language and in its force of its arrangement is an imperative that women should be educated, which they were primarily not educated in the ancient Near East. And so you have a new community of men and women, not separated in the way they would have been in the synagogue with the women in another room doing chitty chatty things and the men learning in Hebrew. And instead you have the men and the women in a mixed audience, which is brand new. And the women are uneducated, and in a few instances, uh, chatting amongst themselves during the sermon, very disruptive. And here in Timothy, standing up to overtake the teacher. And so Paul says, let a woman learn. That's the impulse. And to do so quietly with submissiveness. That word submissiveness in the Greek is hupatasso. Hupatasso. There are several words that are translated submit or obey. One of them is hubakuo, which means to listen as a subordinate. Under listen, it means. And this is most frequently translated obey. But it is never once translated as obey. You never see the word hubakuo in terms of a woman, ever. It's never in there. So if you took vows that say you love, honor, and obey your husband, that was an English problem. <laughs> Hipotasso means to set oneself under, which makes an appeal to your personhood, your dignity, and your volition to act in a way that defers to your husband in your own power. And so this is now talking about what you do with the power you have. And we all know you have power, ladies. Don't pretend you don't, right? He may be the head, but I'm the neck, ah, right? So what are you gonna do with it? Hipotasso, that's the word you're always gonna see in every one of these passages. 
I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority. Now, I love the ESV. I love it because it's readable. I love it that it's, it's close to a word-for-word -word translation. That's super hard to find. The, the, the truth of God is in the words. Do you know that? But all of the writers of the, or all the translators of this particular edition are all complementarian, patriarchal traditionalists, all of them. And so they, unfortunately, purposefully obscure the fact that there's one Greek word that's only used in this one passage that literally means to usurp authority. To literally, if I'm up here preaching and one of you ladies doesn't like it and so you come up out of your seat and you come on stage and you just yell louder than me, would that be okay? In any setting, would that be all right? He's saying, I'm not saying that's okay. Let them learn, yes. Don't let them come up and take control. Don't let them decide they're the new teacher. That's not okay, I'm not saying that. Rather, she's to remain quiet. And then, listen, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. Does this mean that Adam is better than Eve? Has more power than Eve? Is smarter than Eve? Some people will read this and go, yeah, women are dumb, easily deceived, men are smart, let them teach. What? Do you know any women? I'm guessing they don't feel free to talk around you, bud. Because <laughs> I know a lot of super smart women. What does it mean then? Here's what it means. Adam was created first. Do you know that Eve did not hear God say, you shall not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Only Adam heard God say that. Do you know where Eve heard that? From Adam. And was Eve right in the details when she conversed with the serpent in Genesis chapter three about what God actually said? No, she was not. There was a discrepancy between what Eve was taught and what Eve believed that created her ability to be tempted and to be led astray. And so the solution is what? Let them learn. Do you understand? It doesn't mean shut them up. It means they need to be educated because this is where the trouble lies. And this is the creation order. It's not about hierarchy in the male female relationship. It's about who knew what first and how did that play itself into the problem? Uh, the next, verse 15 is super tricky. We don't have time to get into that. It doesn't matter. I could, we could do this all day. Maybe someday we will. The point is this. Um, we've gotta be people who are willing to recognize and empower the people around us as Christian people. We've gotta be able to call value. We gotta be able to look at a woman in a, in a man's job who's doing a good job and say, yeah, she's doing a better job than the last guy. We also need to be able to recognize that God built us different and it's okay to say that we're different. And it's okay to say that most Marines will be male and we don't need to make an equal number of women Marines and male Marines and that'll be equality. That's stupid, amen? So we need to recognize what God is doing. We need to recognize that there's amoral systems, but there's a purpose that God has. And we need to be the environment that empowers everyone to be who God has called them to be. That should, that should be what influences our marriage relationships. That should be what influences our families. And that's gotta be what influences the church. Brothers and sisters, our world needs all of us to get in the game and we can't silence 50% of the Christian population. Amen? And so the rest I leave to your personal study. But I want us to direct our attention back to God because ultimately you may find some hesitancy as you pursue this course of study. It may rub against something that was deep on the inside of you in the level of your ideology. And you're gonna have to take that up with the Lord. I do this all the time with him, by the way. He's real good at it. But I want you to remember that he's God and you're not. And so we're gonna end giving him our worship, giving him our, 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 our praise, giving him our lives and reflecting on the fact that he only has good things in store, blessing and flourishing for every single one of us, amen? God, I pray for myself, for every person in my hearing, I pray for anybody who is here in the house or in my hearing that does not know you, the living God, through faith in your son, Jesus. God, as they 
get a better glimpse of who you are and what you're like and what you're doing in history. God, I pray that they would experience the miracle of your voice calling their name and that they would trust you in as much as they know you, they would put their trust in you, God, and that you would give them eternal life and that no one would snatch them from your hand. God, I pray as we engage with these important issues that we would do so in a way that honors you and honors one another. We ask for your help and we thank you, God, that you have a purpose for every single one of us. Be honored and magnified in each of our lives and our words and deeds. In Jesus' mighty name, all God's people said, amen, amen. Let's stand.